Well, surprise, I'm speaking as well this morning, so now that you've given your offerings, we can't take those back, so it's probably why we do this now. Uh, Brian is getting ready for our new uh, sermon series, What's Your Slogan? And um, we thought we'd promo not only a class coming up this fall that Brian and I are teaching, it's Lostology. And if you hear the word evangelism, you're like, what does that even mean? It just means basically this. It's just a fancy word for saying that we like to share what Jesus has done for us, just like what we talked about this morning with people who don't know about it. That's it. That's all it is. And so lostology is what we're going to be talking about this morning. A law of lostology, I think, would become, is timely for us today. If you have your smartphones, I want you to take them out right now. No, we're not doing text questions. And no, we're not sending emojis across the way like, I can't believe Ryan's speaking this morning. I should have taken the day off type of thing, okay? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to take out your browser. Find your web browser. And I just want you to type in the search, okay? This is what I want you to type in. Search and rescue and hit go, all right? So... Search for search and rescue. Do it. I mean it. If you've got a smartphone, do it. And then I want you to just kind of scroll through the results, okay? Just scroll through the results and see what you get um, on there. Did your results include any of these advertisements? Vinny's cut rate lost and found. You lose it, we find it cheaply. Just because we have no experience looking doesn't mean we can't find it. We know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. How about this one? uh, Sally's search for you. With over 25 years of experience searching for lost items, why look for it yourself? All you need to do is this. Text us a picture of what you lost, give us your credit card number, and we'll do all the rest. We'll keep you posted. How about this one? I like this one. Sniff It Out Incorporated. Highly trained search chihuahuas. Rent our dogs by the hour or by the day. Weekly discount rates available upon request. Easy pickup, easy drop-off. All of our animals are house-trained. How about this one? Lost, and you didn't even know it, international. 1-900-SO, with two O's, lost. Why pay for professionals when you can use our trained volunteers to help you organize your own search? Only $2.99 per minute, which is hundreds less than you would expend on a real search and rescue team. Now, for updates on our search for Waldo, press 3. For our updates on our search for Elvis, press 4. All other calls, please hold. Did you find any of those on your search on your phone? Look again. Did you find anything that says discount search and rescue on your phones? Anybody? Bueller? Anybody? No one? Okay. Here's why you didn't find it. You ready for this? Put your seatbelts on. Ready? Because searches normally require large amounts of two things. What are they? Time and money. And we know this. We know this to be a fact. Did you know that the United States Coast Guard is the leader of search and rescue missions in America? Did you know that? Some of those brave men and women are here today. I think we should give them a hand. Now, according to 2009 statistics, they came to the assistance of an average, this is an average in 2009, of 114 people per day. 114 people per day. Just think about that. For a total cost in 2009 of $680 million annually. Now, just to give you a sense of the total cost of a real search and rescue, the Coast Guard patrol boat will cost you $1,147 per hour to operate. 
If the search includes one of those C-130 turboprop planes, the fuel bill increases to a rate of $7,600 per hour. And if you're like me and you see one of those new helicopters go past and you're like, ooh, pretty, you know how much an hour that costs to operate? $8,000, roughly. This brings us to the first part of our law this morning. And you know this, searches are always what? Costly. Searches are always costly. Now, when a news story breaks of a desperate search for a missing child like this new one that we've seen on the, 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 way, the airwaves, the 20-year-old Iowa University student, Molly Tibbetts, instantly our hearts go out for the parents, do, do they not? I mean, we, we, our hearts just break for them, and we usually wonder to ourselves, how would we personally respond? How would we personally react if this happened to us, if we were in these people's shoes. Well, one thing is absolutely sure, and I think all of us would agree, if someone in our family was lost, and Brian added, unless it's his mother-in-law, we would pay whatever the search required, would we not? Including your mother-in-law, Brian, I know you'd look for her. Would we not? Or would we be like, hmm, I wonder if there's a discount rate for finding this person? Now, Molly Tibbetts, his, her family posted the first couple thousand. And then, like, in two days, it was 10. And then in three days, it was, like, 30. And then 50 and 100. And then over one weekend, it's raised to $300,000 and still growing on just information. Can I have any information that my daughter's still alive? The longer the search goes, the more desperate and the more funds are thrown into that. Why? Because time is of the essence that lost person can be in real danger. Time wouldn't be an issue, would it, in a search? We wouldn't be like, mm, I, let me check my calendar this morning. I don't know if I've got time today. We'd break commitments. We, we would come back from vacation. We'd change our work plans, our date night. We'd cancel everything, and we'd redirect all that energy, all that time into searching. Our only focus would be what? Finding the person who is what? Lost. Now, thank God that most of us have probably never had to be in that type of situation where we have someone that's lost in a desperate need where we're searching and we're using a search and rescue operation. But we all know the facts, and the facts are this. Searches are always costly. Time and money? Yeah, we would expect Searches to require both. But, but, when it comes to a spiritual search and rescue, we use something that was made popular during the Bush era. We use fuzzy math. We take a couple numbers and we add them up and what happens at the end is not always the correct amount. When it comes to a spiritual search and rescue, we want something that won't cost anything or demand any of our time. And this is completely unrealistic and, and completely contrary to everything we know about the search and rescue efforts, especially when we look at the personal cost of God's spiritual search and rescue for the lost. Now I'm going to let the cat out of the bag early this morning. The price paid for God's spiritual search for the lost was the life of His very own Son, which we celebrated this morning. His very life for ours. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his one and only son. 
that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But not only was Jesus personally, physically sent by God to save the world, Jesus paid the ransom that we owed with his very own life. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, he, bore, uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. I mean, his, his road to the cross was no joke, people. His death on the cross was horrible, it was cruel, it was unusual. But Jesus was compelled by his love for the lost, his compassion for those who were lost and without him, that he was willing to pay any price to get us back. Let's look at Mark 14 and 15. So if you're in Obadiah, just start heading towards the right side of your book where the names make sense. Okay? So if you see Ezekiel and, you know, Habakkuk and all these things, about, I don't know, three quarters of the way. Page like 1,642, if you have the same Bible that I do. That's kind of where I'm at, right there. Mark 14 and 15. We'll be there the whole entire rest of the morning. So why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the book we're in. Starting in verse 61. And if you don't have your Bible, the Scripture will be up on the screen, so you can follow along that way. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And he responds, Jesus, to the high priest, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. During Jesus' kangaroo court uh, trial by the high priest, the chief priest, the elders, and all the other spiritual insiders of the time, they tried to find anything, something that they could accuse Jesus of so that they could kill him. But they couldn't find anything, and they couldn't get any, anyone to line up. All they needed was two people to have the same exact story. And all night long, they're just trying to line up two people. That's all they needed to say, this man's worthy of death. Can you imagine if two people ganged up on you? They needed two witnesses to line up their stories. And guess what? They could not even find two. So they had to go straight to Jesus, and they asked him, who do you say you are? And he drops this huge bomb in their laps. He tells them straight up, I am God, with the three words, or the two words, I am. Just right there. They say, who are you? Who sent you? And he goes, I am. And instantly they all knew what he was talking about. Now you might not, but if I connect it back to the story of the burning bush and Moses, and Moses walks up to this bush that was burning but wasn't burning up, and and it's telling him, this voice comes out of the bush that you're going to go redeem my people and you're going to go bring them out of Egypt and you're going to tell this person this and that person this and you're going to do all these signs and wonders. And he says, well, who should I say sent me? Who is this powerful thing that's sending me out to go do this crazy thing? And the bush says, I am. Meaning, I have always been, I always will be, I am, I'm God. So, when Jesus drops the word, I am, in their laps, their minds basically melt and they have a conniption. I mean, look at what happens next. If this doesn't tell you about that grown men can have a fit, check this out. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy, which means someone claiming to be God. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. 
they began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with his fist and said, prophesy, tell us who's hitting you in the face. And the guards took and beat him. After the religious guys had had their way with him, Jesus was handed over to the, relig- or the Roman ruler Pontius Pilate of Jerusalem who knew that Jesus was an innocent, innocent man. He even knew it through a dream that his wife was having. But he was swayed by the crowd to kill Jesus because that's what politicians usually do. They like to go with the crowd. And that's where we pick it up in verse uh, 12 of chapter 15. So Mark 15, 12. What should I do then, Pilate asked, with the one you call the Jews? The crowd in verse 13 says, crucify him. And he says, why? Why should I do this? What crime has he committed, said Pilate. But they shouted louder, crucify him, kill him, kill him, kill him. Scripture says it plainly, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and then handed him over to be crucified. Flogged is a very nice way of saying that Jesus was tied to a low pole on the ground so that his back, his arms, his legs were fully exposed. And then they would start with a flexible stick. And they start to beat him back and forth, back and forth, back, neck, head, legs, arms. And then once that ramped up, once the body was kind of softened, they would probably say, they would take this, nick, this tool named the scorpion and it had leather it, had, it was fastened to a leather handle, and, and the leather would come off, and at the end of this, these leather straps, they would have pieces of bone or, or glass or lead attached to the end, and it would, it would grab flesh as it went around, and then they'd tear it out. The Romans had perfected this type of torture so well, and they had done it to so many people they could literally look at a person and bring them to the very edge of death. Just bring them right to the edge and keep them there. Just going to bring them right here. They were so good at it. They were so versed at it, and they had done it so many times. Let's just put it this way, because we have kids in the room, including mine. A person would probably look like raw hamburger when this is all finished. You know, we see Jesus on the cross in, in these movies we watch, and it's not even a tenth. We're not even close. I mean, he still looks like the person that we saw, the actor. We can still recognize him. Scripture says they didn't recognize him when they were finished with him. Just let that sink in on you right this morning. Mark 15, 16 continues, the soldiers led Jesus away to, into the palace, which was the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. This would be like their barracks. And they put a purple robe on him, and they twisted a crown of thorns together and set it on his head. They began to call out, Hail, King of the Jews. They were mocking him, and again and again they struck him in the head and with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had been done mocking him, they took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes, and they led him out to be crucified. 
Beating Jesus to the brink of death wasn't enough. Let's just emotionally beat the snot out of this guy. Let's make fun of him. They they grab a hastily made crown of thorns and they jam it into his head. I'm sure it pierced his brow into his skull. They pretended to pay homage to him by worshiping him and bowing before him. It was all a big act to make him feel small. Then they proceeded to beat him even more, hitting him in the head with a staff that they had given him in another passage as his royal scepter. So they started beating him with his own royal scepter and then they were yelling in his face. And when they had their fun with him, when they were finished, they tore the robe off his back, which I'm sure was acting like a huge big band-aid at that point in his life. Just imagine that. Put his clothes on and then let him out to death. Verse 21 says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in the country, and they forced him to carry the, the cross. And this verse just basically highlights that Jesus was so wounded, so severely beaten, so weak that he could not carry the beam that he would be nailed to. And so the Roman guards grabbed a man from the crowd and forced him to carry it. Verse 22 says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see who would get his clothes. So they they bet on his clothes to see who would get it. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The word crucified has so much detail packed into it, we don't even have time for that this morning. Suffice it to say, they nailed him to a, a cross, to a beam, and they nailed him through his wrist and through his ankles together. And that's what he would be supported on by nails in his wrists and and through his feet and his back, his poorly shredded back would be against rough-hewn wood. Imagine how that felt. Then they'd hoist the cross up and as it came up, it would drop into position. And usually they'd wait for days, sometimes even weeks, for the person to finally die, either from blood loss, a heart attack, exposure, or basically drowning in their own fluids. It was ugly, it was brutal, it was the worst way invented at the time to kill and torture somebody. Verse 25 says, it was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews, over his head, they had posted it why he was there, and they crucified two robbers with him, one on the right and one on the left. With him, they crucified two common thieves, and those who passed, verse 29 says, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, so, you're going to destroy this temple and, and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourselves. His crucifixion, just like all crucifixions, would have been a very public scene and in a spot where everyone could see it because it was a Roman's warning. You mess with us, this is where you'll be. You try to take over, this is where you'll be. And those passing by on the road saw fit to mock Jesus openly. In the same way, verse 31 says, the chief priest and teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves and they said, you could save other people. You said you could do that, but you can't even save yourself. Look at you. 
let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see him believe. Man, at that point, I'd be like, okay. Dun, dun, dun. Be evaporated. What now? That would have been my response if I was Jesus right there. Thank God I'm not Jesus, okay? Can we all agree that it's a good thing? Can we all agree? Amen to that, please? All right. You're thinking it, though. I know you are. Some of you are. How many of us could sit there and take that? How many of us feel really good when our kids take advantage of us? You do something really nice, and then they kind of like mock you for what you've done. I mean, it feels kind of horrid, right? Now think, imagine, Jesus is there for a reason, and he knows why he's there. And he's dying for the people who are mocking him. And at that point, I'd be like, this isn't worth it. This is not worth it. I'd step down and show him all my glory, and they'd be evaporated. That's what would happen. But Jesus is not Ryan. And Jesus stayed there and took it all for us. And I want to let it sink in this morning. He paid a terrible, horrible price for us. And look what happens. That the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, verse 34. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those standing near him heard this and they said, listen, he's talking to the prophet Elijah. Again, there's so many things in these three verses. We don't have time to address them this morning because it's already 11.30. I cannot believe how time is flying. But there came a point during this scene where God's wrath is rightful anger against sin and wickedness and rebellion of mankind that he pours it all out on Jesus this had to be the worst part of it. And if you don't think so, later this week, I want you to read uh, Mark 14, 34 through 36 and see him wrestling with what he would have to do. This is probably what he was wrestling about. One man ran up with a sponge in verse 36 and wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus. This would have been like a sedative, like this guy is hospice. He's coming in with a stick. Here, I'm just going to give this. I'm just going to make it easy for you. And Jesus refused. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And the centurion, this is, would be like the general. He's the person in charge of, of, of all these soldiers around. He stood there in front of Jesus and he saw everything from the Pontius Pilate all the way to the cross. And he says, he heard the cry and saw how he died and said this, surely this man was the son of God. This is a guy who killed people for a living, who did it so well that they put him in charge. And even to a heathen man who knew nothing of God, Jehovah, the creator of the world, he said this, this guy is the real deal. Another account of the story in the Bible, John tells us exactly what he cries out when he cried out in a loud voice and he cried this, it is finished, which is basically means this, the debt 
has been paid in full. And what debt was it for the wages, what we earned of sin is what? Death. It's paid in full, Jesus says, and then he dies. It's done. My mission's complete. To prove the price had been paid so that lost people could be saved and find their way to God and have a face-to-face relationship again, a restored re- relationship that was broken because of our sin. The, the, the temple's incredibly heavy curtain that symbolically and physically separated people from the presence of God was ripped from the top to the bottom. Can you imagine the priest's that are preparing for the Passover that day, and they're ready to make the sacrifice, and they're about to send the high priest into the presence of God, into the Ark of the Covenant, and all of a sudden, a place that no one could go into. They're in the temple. No one could be there except for one time of the year, and they sent the guy with a rope on his leg in case he died because he came into the holy presence of God, and God smite him dead. They could drag him out instead of letting the corpse rot back there. That curtain gets torn from top to bottom. It was like God just stepped from heaven down to earth and just said, shh, come, come to me. I love that the curtain didn't just fall. I love that the curtain didn't just burn up. I love that it was torn from the top to the bottom. God is all about symbols, is he not? The way has been made for us to be right with God and into his presence. What an amazing thing. And everything we've talked about in Mark 14 and 15 this morning, all the pain, all the suffering, all the costs, this is what love compelled Jesus to do. This is what the price he was willing to pay. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't cost effective. In fact, if you were to look at it humanly speaking, and this is why we're singing the song this morning, it's kind of reckless from our view to Jesus' view. By the word reckless, I mean this. Jesus didn't care about what his love would cost him. He just threw it out there. The very people he came to save, the very people that he had a covenant relationship, a forever promise with, those were the people who crucified him. That seems reckless to me from my view. I'm not saying God is reckless. You're not going to find that in the Bible. But from my human perspective to God, what are you thinking? Why would you do this? One answer. Four letters. Starts with L and ends with of. Love. Thank you. Love compelled him to pay this awful, awful price so that we could have a relationship with him. Which brings us back to our law. Searches are always what? Costly. And love pays whatever the search costs. Can we say that together? Searches are always costly and love pays whatever the search costs. You see, when we share our faith, when we step out and we, we take Jesus into our world and we want to share what Jesus has done in our life with people who may not know him, it's going to require sacrifice. And we have to measure that investment of time, money, resources, passion against the standard of the cross. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us keeps it all in perspective. 
evangelism requires sacrifice, and we must measure our investment against the standard of the cross. Time and money have nothing to do with the validity of a search and rescue operation. We don't search for the lost because it's convenient or cost-effective. As people who seek to follow Christ's example for us, as people who are claimed to be little Christ, that's what Christian means. I'm a Christian, it means I'm a little Christ. As people who say we follow Jesus, as a people who say we've entered into his presence and his love has changed us, Love must be the compelling factor to search. Reaching out for the, and searching for the spiritually lost will demand time and money and lots of it. There simply is no alternative. Just like we found in our Google search this morning or Chrome search this morning, there are no discount searches. Sharing our faith will impact our calendars. Let me tell you, people, building relationships with non-Christians takes time. And it means that you're going to have to say no to other things. You know, Julie and I were just discussing this this week. Man, we've, we've come to a point in, in the church in America where about so many programs that we barely have time to have relationships with people outside of these four walls. And I'm going rogue here. This is not even on my notes. So Brian, forgive me in advance. We've become so complicated it's, it's like we're starting to build a relationship with someone and we're like, oh, I'm sorry, I got to go. I got Bible study tonight. Oh, my kid's got to be back at church tonight. I don't know how I feel about it. Evangelism, sharing our faith, which is the thing we're supposed to be about. Jesus' last words were what? Go into all the world. Sharing what I've done, teaching people about it, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go into the world. In the world, but not of the world. But I'm sorry to tell you this, and I've been a, a part of this, is we make Christianity about this bubble that we live in where we like to control everything and everything's perfect and it's safe. Following Jesus is not safe, people. Do you realize that? Someday, some of us might be on a beach with someone behind us with a big old knife, just like those people overseas. If we follow Jesus, we should expect trials and tribulations. It's going to require sacrifice to find people who are lost. It's going to require it. Sharing our faith is going to impact your calendar. You're going to have to look at stuff and go, should I be doing all of these things I want to do or can I make a sacrifice here so that I can have time to share my faith with my neighbors? Time to build a relationship with my coworkers. Time. Relationships don't happen by accident. You know this. I mean, we get in the maintenance mode, and all of a sudden, you're like, all your friends are like, where are all my friends? It's because it requires time and sacrifice and investment. And I'm telling you, people who don't know Jesus, it's messy, it's complicated. 
you're going to hear things, you're like, whew. I think if my mom heard that, she'd pass out. We need to be ready. But I'm telling you this, the most effective evangelistic tool is relationships with people. But those relationships have to be built and they have to have a direction. They have to have a goal. Sharing our faith will also not only impact our calendars, but it's going to impact our checkbooks. I mean, the reason why behind events and programs like VBS and Kingdom Kids and Sportsman Banquet and TC Cares isn't just for equipping people who already know Jesus, but it's to reach out to those who don't know him so they can have also a relationship with Jesus that radically changes their life. And these programs, surprise, surprise, aren't cheap. Who's going to fund these efforts? Who's going to invest their time into these, these efforts? Who will staff them? We will. It's part of the more and better. These aren't just three words that we throw around. It's an actual lifestyle that Jesus told us to do. Go and make disciples more and better. We go find them. We rescue. They become Christ followers, and it changes their life, so they go back and find more so they can become better, so the better can go find more and become better and more and better and more and better and more and better. We pony up to the, the Christian buffet, all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet, and we're like 20 plates in people. Seriously. I have been front to cover of this book several dozen times, and I'm telling you, I can't apply everything that's in it doesn't mean I shouldn't try, but I'm telling you, there's so much stuff in here that if I don't go expend it on people that don't know Jesus, it's just a waste of calories. If this doesn't change my life so that I can reach people for Jesus Christ, we have more but selfish. The formula that God gave us, that Jesus gave us, is more and better, and they reach the more that become better, and that's how it works. <sighs> it's going to cost us more than ever before reaching people because it requires sacrifice of time and resources. Just remember this, in light of everything, that someone else paid the price for you. We're all here because of someone else, are we not? Close your eyes, and I want you to think about that person that shared Jesus with you. Right now, close them. My parents flew all the way to the Philippines to share Jesus with me, and I saw their faith in action, and it changed my life. Sunday school teacher, Awana worker, VBS, parent, friend, Think of the sacrifice they made for you so you could be sitting here today. Maybe you're here this morning because someone invited you. They care about you. They want you to be here for a reason, to hear the good news that Jesus Christ died for all the world's sins. And we could be radically changed because of it. I want you to open your eyes. Does everyone have a face that you see? I can see mine as clear as day. 
hot, sweaty Filipino pastor preaching at the top of his lungs, telling me how horrible hell was. I couldn't sleep for a week. (laughs) Evangelism requires sacrifice, and we have to measure that investment against the standard of the cross this morning. And as we look at Christ's sacrifice for the lost, as we look at Christ's sacrifice for us individually, He paid your price, my price, the world's price. It will help us keep all that investment into perspective. Let's read the last law together. Searches are always costly, and love pays whatever the search costs. Let's read it again. Searches are always costly, and love pays whatever the search costs. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, somehow you love us more than I can ever imagine. That's why it's amazing grace. That's why it's amazing love because it blows our minds to think that you saw us in our sin, that you saw us in our rebellion against you, but yet you chose to come to die for us on the cross to pay the terrible price that we owed so that we could have new life, that we could have a a new hope, that we could have a future of eternity in heaven with you at the, the banquet table of God. We don't understand it. We don't get it. But Lord, we're so grateful. Lord, I pray that your example to us would change us radically so that we would be willing to pay the price that others paid for us. In your most precious name, amen. Now from cover to cover, the Bible displays the incredible price that God was willing to pay for our search and rescue. For all mankind, the cross is the ultimate price tag for that search. God was willing to pay that price so that you and I could have a way to be right with him and to be rescued and have forgiveness of our sins. Catch this, before time began, God knew that sin would happen and that he knew the sacrifice would be required to make things right again. Before he created the world, God knew the devastating effects that sin would have on our world and the need for a Savior. And before he created the first human being, Adam, God knew that mankind would rebel against his rule and say, I'm going to do it my way. People, they had one rule that was in the negative. Don't eat from that one tree. And we're like, yeah, that sounds great. That's exactly what I'm going to do. God knew all of that before that. And before God entered into a covenant, a forever promise with the nation of Israel, which Pastor talked about in the book of Obadiah, he knew that they would prostitute their love time and time again and that he would have to buy them back with a terrible price. Before God sent the invitation for all mankind to join him at the eternal banquet table, which is heaven, he knew that most would ignore the invitation not ever even open up the envelope, ignore the calls, ignore the text, delete the emails, ignore the pounding on the door. But he keeps going until all who are invited are without excuse. Before God sent his own son to proclaim love's good news, he knew that most in this world, in this planet, would reject him. God knew all this and more 
that God chose to pay the ultimate price. Jesus' death on the cross proved beyond a shadow of doubt that lostology law is true this morning. And Brian's going to come up as we say this together here. Searches are always costly and love pays whatever the search costs.